Well, if you remember, we're currently working our way uh, through the book of Habakkuk. Uh, Before we get into it today, I want to pray and plead with God to come and speak to us. Uh, It's a pretty heavy subject today. I want us to hear God in it all uh, and receive his grace in it as well. So let's pray, invite him to come and speak. Heavenly Father, I thank you in the sense for your presence amongst us already today. Uh, Thank you for speaking already personally, directly, intimately, uh, two ones and twos in this room. Uh, Thank you for just some of the phenomenal truths we've just been singing about in worship. I want to pray that you would come and underline those truths to us now. Help us to encounter you now. Help us to experience more of you, uh, to get closer to you uh, and understand the things that are priorities for you, for our lives. We want to live in accordance with your will. We say, let your will be done amongst us this morning. Amen. Well, we're going to pick it up in Habakkuk chapter 1, verse 2, where Habakkuk launches into a pretty passionate complaint about how God is running the world. This is what Habakkuk says. How long, O Lord, must I call for help, but you do not listen, or cry out to you, violence, but you do not save? Why do you make me look at injustice? Why do you tolerate wrong? Destruction and violence are constantly before me. There is strife and conflict abounds. Therefore, the law is paralyzed and justice never prevails. The wicked hem in the righteous so that justice is perverted. Here's how God answers Habakkuk's complaint. Verse 5, God says... Look at the nations and watch and be utterly amazed. For I am going to do something in your days that you would not believe even if you were told. I'm raising up the Babylonians, that ruthless and impetuous people who sweep across the whole earth to seize dwelling places not their own. They are a feared and dreaded people. They're a law to themselves and promote their own honor. Their horses are swifter than leopards, fiercer than wolves at dusk. Their cavalry gallops headlong. Their horsemen come from afar. They fly like a vulture, swooping to devour. They all come bent on violence. Their hordes advance like a desert wind and gather prisoners like sand. They deride kings and scoff at rulers. They laugh at all fortified cities. They build earthen ramps and capture them. Then they sweep past like the wind and go on. Guilty men whose own strength is their God. Let me try and summarize what's going on in this conversation between Habakkuk and God. Basically, Habakkuk is looking at the world around him. And he says to God, God, why aren't you doing something about all this injustice? God, why aren't you doing anything about your own people who are defaming your name? God, why are you letting all of this go unchecked? And God replies, oh, I'm not idle. I am about to handle this. In fact, right now, I'm about to send the Babylonians, this ruthless, impetuous, morally perverse country, to reap judgment on you, Judah. So, if I could try to pull this into where we could feel it, if I could try and illustrate in our time today what this looks like, what it could mean. Just this week, in the news, we've seen, haven't we, three men found guilty of a gangland shooting in a South London shop that left an innocent five-year-old girl paralyzed for life. This week we've also seen a race-related incident in Salford where a 29-year-old woman was attacked with acid while pushing a pram with a six-month-old baby in it. We've also seen, haven't we, the release of a report into the causes of last summer's riots where gangs just wander around the cities of this nation, smashing in windows, looting shops, setting fire to buildings. Let me try to help you feel Habakkuk 1. It'd be like us looking at all of that 
and saying to God, God, how could you let that happen? God, how could you sit idly by and watch all of this occur? God, why won't you take care of this violence? And it would be like God responding with these words, oh, I'm not idle. In fact, right now, Iran and North Korea are in talks with one another, and I'm going to use them to conquer you and overthrow you and completely wipe out your country. To which we're thinking, God, I wanted you to do something, but not that. You see, this immediately puts us at an odd place with our culture. It's like people want God to do something to sort out all the problems in the world, to remove all the problems, but without judging anyone. So, if after the meeting today you were to head down to the ball ring in the city centre and you started talking to people about God and what they think God is like, here's what I reckon you'd find. You're going to come across some people who would call themselves agnostics, which basically means they believe there is a God, but they're not really sure who He is. You're also going to come across a whole lot of people who are going to be like, well, everything's God. The wind is God, the trees are God, my dog is God, you're God, we're all God, everything's God. You're going to run into that. You're also going to run into people who think that God's like an impersonal force, an energy that's out there in the universe somewhere. You're going to hear probably a little bit about karma. You're likely to run into some people who profess to be Christians. You'll also come across a number of people who are staunch atheists, who say, really, it's all just a myth. It's just not credible. Religion is the cause of all the problems in the world. Just write off religion, everything will be solved. But nine times out of ten, as long as you're not talking to a staunch atheist, you're going to hear that God is love. People think God is love. Now, there is a lot of biblical truth in that. But the problem is that love is really hard to define in our culture. It has a whole range of meanings because you love your cat and you love your husband. You're probably not saying the same thing there. You love Chinese food and you love your sports team. And it's nothing to do with you at all. It's more to do with what these other things bring to you, what they give to you, how they make you feel at any moment in time. So if I could try to express or articulate what I think we tend to mean when we say we love, I think we mean right now, today, in this moment, in this situation, this particular thing makes me feel good. And if the moment changes, or if the situation changes, or if my feelings change in some way, then I no longer love it. I think that goes some way to explaining are pretty extreme reactions when something doesn't work out. I mean, just look at the divorce rates in this country right now. 50% of marriages in the UK currently end in divorce. You know what that is? As long as you make me happy, I'm in. As long as you are a means to my ends, I'm in. But if you let that change... I might just fall out of love. It's why we turn so quickly on our teams or on our car. We, we love our car until it doesn't start. And then we hate our car. We, we love our house until the plumbing breaks. Then we hate our house. We've got to move. During the same game, we will love and hate our team. They're going to do it. They're going to do it. They're going to do it. Oh, they do this to me every time. It's kind of because the word love doesn't mean a whole lot. It merely means I like it right now. So now you've got a word that's pretty much empty of meaning being attached to ultimate reality. We say God is love. What does that actually mean? Now, if you'll dig around, I think what people mean when they say that God is love is that he is some sort of wrathless fairy 
who floats around just sprinkling pixie dust on people. And so, the quickest way to make a secular mind furious and a Christian mind slightly nervous is to talk about God being full of wrath or anger, and to talk about the reality that God is a just judge. That bothers people. And on reflection, I find it surprising that it bothers people. It's surprising because our culture loves... And a Christian mind slightly nervous is to talk about God being full of wrath, or anger, and to talk about the reality that God is a just judge. That bothers people. And on reflection, I find it surprising that it bothers people. It's surprising because our culture loves justice. I mean, just in yesterday, I was a little bored. I I looked through the, the, the kind of what's on TV for the next week. I did a quick count of the number of crime dramas that are just on the terrestrial channels in the next seven days. How many do you think there are? Any guesses? Eight? Uh, good answer over there. Any, any other thoughts? 30? 50, 50, 30? 44 crime dramas just on the terrestrial channels these next seven days. We love justice until someone starts to talk about God being just. And then all of a sudden, we don't like it so much. Christians get nervous about that. They get nervous about the idea of a literal hell. They get nervous about a God who would judge people. And secular people grow furious at this idea. It's as if to be just... And to have wrath means you're not loving. But here's what I contend. If you actually love something, you are far more likely to feel wrath and seek justice. I mean, if you say you love this thing and it gets tarnished or abused or stolen or violated in some way, and you just don't care, then clearly you don't love it. I mean, it doesn't mean that much to you. But if you genuinely love it, it matters to you when someone damages it. Now there's wrath. Now there are feelings of judgment because what's important to you has been violated in some way. Now I'd suggest, when you lose the correct definition of love, you begin to miss out and all these really deep, thick, foundational elements of God's nature and His true character. So we need to talk today about some of those elements, about some of those things. And just to warn you up front, it's going to collide big time with what our culture thinks and what our culture feels. And so we're going to have to decide over and over and over again who sets what's true culture or the Bible? Because what you're going to find is that on a whole ton of different issues, the Bible is going to collide with what culture says and what culture thinks, and it's going to be a pretty violent collision. I mean, you can look at this in terms of sexuality, in terms of abortion, in terms of gender roles, in terms of materialism. On and on I could go. You're going to find our culture and the Bible disagreeing colliding violently. So, let me just tell you quickly three reasons why I personally will always side with the Bible over what culture teaches. Because if you don't nail this one up front, you're going to dismiss everything else I'm going to say today. So, why go for what the Bible says over what our culture says? Here's the first reason. One of these is transcendent. That's a big word. It means above everything, beyond everything. One of these is transcendent, one of them isn't. One is supreme. It can fit anywhere. It works in every situation. 
and one can't. I mean, you try exporting Western culture into Iran or Iraq, it'd be like trying to breathe water for them. It it simply wouldn't work. It doesn't translate. It will be resisted. Some of you are like, well, it's a, a rubbish illustration. I mean, I don't know that you could export the Bible into Iran or Iraq right now and have it work. Now, in all my encouragement to you, I want to plead with you, read the Bible, but also watch the news. See what's going on around the world. The Iranian government currently is trying to crack down on a house church movement in Iran that's expanding at a phenomenal rate at the moment. The gospel of Jesus Christ is beginning to explode beneath the surface right out into the Muslim world. It's always going to happen. The Scriptures told us it was going to happen. It's been prophesied about since Genesis 12 that this would occur. Whether it's China, South America, the Middle East, or Europe, the same thing is true. And on and on we could go, one is transcendent, one works in every situation, it's beyond, above everything, and one isn't. Before I go for the Bible. Number two, second reason why I choose the Bible over culture. One doesn't change... And one changes its mind constantly. Well, this becomes impossible, doesn't it, to to keep up with culture. It's constantly changing its mind about what's valuable, what's right, what works, what isn't valuable, what isn't right, what doesn't work. I mean, chocolate. The message has been not a great thing for you. Was it this week or last week? The message came out, now eating chocolate every day is really good for you. And everyone's kind of latched onto that. Keep changing your mind. Same with kind of drinking wine or taking in coffee. I mean, bad for you, good for you. We just can't make up our minds. Uh, similarly with Simon Cowell. I mean, you love him one minute and then, oh, no, he's just rubbish and we hate him. Britain's Got Talent, who watched it last night? Who, who watched it last year? More people. See, we, we change our minds. What, the flavor of the mother, oh, no, no, no. We, we, right. Culture constantly changing. The Bible simply doesn't change. Now, if you're a skeptic, maybe you're like, well, again, I don't know if that's a great example. I, I just don't know if that's true. I mean, didn't people in the olden days use the Bible to justify slavery? But it was also the Bible that convinced a great deal of people to lay down their wealth and their lives to see the slave trade brought down. I think the real problem is people, not the Bible. It's our twisting, our manipulation of what the Bible says rather than the reality and the truth of what the Bible says. In the end, one doesn't change and one does. I wish I had some pictures of how we dressed in the 1980s. Like, someone should have stopped that. Someone should have said, that's pastel and you've got a perm, and you're a man. But no one ever said it. Everyone was too busy listening to Kajagoogoo and wanting to be Phil Collins, and we all regret it with hindsight. Uh, I mean, one changes, one doesn't. Number three, the scri- you've got some horrible images in your mind now. Move, move them out of your mind. Number three, the Scriptures can deliver what they promise, and culture has never, ever been able to do that. I've been following God for 35 years now. And I can honestly say that so far he hasn't yet failed to deliver. Certainly been things which at the time I would have wished would have gone another way. There have been disappointments. There has been heartbreak at times. There have been periods of pain. But several years on, looking back, reflecting on it all, I can honestly say there is just gratitude towards God. My own personal experience is that God, over and over and over again, has delivered what He's promised. Culture doesn't possess that ability. In fact, I think it has lied to us so often and for so long, most of us can't even recognize that it continues to lie to us. Let me give you a couple of false promises that I consider big ones right now. Here's the first one. Technology was supposed to buy us time. You remember that promise? The idea was, hey, this new internet thing and email and mobile phones, we're going to have so much more time, we can pick up a new hobby and have more leisure time and spend a ton of time with our family. 
has it delivered? No. We're lying in bed at night or sitting on a beach on the other side of the world answering work emails. It hasn't delivered. The promise was, life's going to get easier. You're going to be far more productive. You'll have much more time for the things that really matter. And instead, it has delivered the opposite. We don't have enough time. We're being hounded constantly by our phone, by emails. And a whole lot of our relationships are now just surface level. Like, you do know, don't you, that a Facebook friend isn't an actual friend. And just because someone follows you on Twitter doesn't mean you guys are close. But this is that kind of false social context that we live in right now. And it deceives us into thinking we've got loads, hundreds of good friends. But we don't have any kind of relationship with most of those people. And so we become these kind of voyeuristic, weird stalkers of people. Oh, I never thought you'd marry someone who looked like that. Or, oh, they had their friends round last night and I wasn't invited. Why not? It looks like they had a great holiday. I wish I could afford a holiday like that. Technology hasn't made things a whole lot easier for us. Here's the second one. Sex. If you're not aware of history... It's really just been the last century in Western culture that sex has moved to the forefront of just about everything. So that in the end, we can't even define ourselves without referring to our sexuality or our sexual status. I'm gay or I'm straight. I'm single or I'm in a relationship. Those things define us. We live in this lust-driven society which is kind of propagated and spread the lie that sex is this all-satisfying thing that answers all of our problems. It's simply not. But culture's response to it not working is to keep tweaking it. Oh, since you're having sex and it's not satisfying all of your needs, then you need to find another sexual partner that will satisfy all your needs. That's how to solve the problem. And on and on it goes. It's like culture continually lies to us. And because we're deceived, we just lap it up. We keep believing that this is going to satisfy me, that this is going to take care of me. That's what I need. That's what I have to get. If I I could get to that, then I'm going to be happy. And it's just never been true. Culture cannot deliver on its promises. You can get all you want but ultimately it's not going to deliver, because it can't. And that's why I'm always going to side with the Bible. And that's not to mention, I guess, the primary reason for taking the Bible seriously. I mean, it's written by God, and He created the whole world, and He knows the beginning and the end. Why wouldn't I take what He says seriously? It's no wonder that the Bible, God's Word, is transcendent. It goes beyond everything else. It's no wonder that it doesn't change. It's no wonder it delivers what it promises. And so returning to Habakkuk, as Habakkuk surveys the cultural scene of his day, he doesn't see a whole lot of people taking God's Word seriously. And he also doesn't see a whole lot of justice. And so Habakkuk comes and protests to God. He says, God, do you see this? God, do you see what's going on all around me? God, do you see what state, what condition we're in? God, do you see where all of this is heading? I want you to think about this. If Habakkuk is seeing the injustice and the violence and the destruction, how much more do you think God is seeing it? I mean, if one man with just two eyes in one location in a nation can say, look at this, how much more do you think God, who knows all and sees all, can go, look at this? So God answers Habakkuk's prayer in the affirmative. 
I mean, isn't that what Habakkuk wanted? God, are you going to just sit there and watch this? No. No, I'm not. Here I come. Here's the solution. Here's my answer. As we'll see next time, Habakkuk's like, what? I mean, God, I didn't mean for you to take it quite that seriously. Really, the truth I want you to take home from this talk is a very, very simple one. In the end, God is a just judge who will judge everyone. God is a just judge who will judge everyone. And although this clashes with our culture, maybe even our own personal view of God and what we'd like Him to be like, and though we'd rather cover our ears and block this out because it's not pleasant to us, it is the consistent message of the Bible. So for the time that remains today, I want to prove it to you. I want you to see God for who He really is. He is both a God of love and a God of justice. And in no way is that a contradiction. So let's look at what the Bible says. First thing I want us to grasp is that God sees everything. God really does see everything. I guess the title for the last talk in Habakkuk that we did was God Hears and Answers. Maybe the proper title for this one would be God Sees and Acts. God Sees Everything number of passages I just want to read to you. Don't need to turn to them all, the words will appear behind me. Job 28, 24, for God views the ends of the earth and sees everything under the heavens. Whole breadth of everything taking place on earth right now, God sees it all. But He also sees the specific detail of our individual lives. Psalm 69 verse 5, you know my folly, O God, my guilt, my own personal guilt is not hidden from you. It's like there's this recurring theme in the Bible that there is no such thing as a secret with God. Secrecy is a myth. Everything you think, everything you do, Every place you go is seen by God. You know, I think one of the reasons why we are so comfortable at times in our sin is because we've lost a respect for the presence of God. It's much harder to stare at porn on a computer screen when you're aware that God sees and He's in the room right next to you. Next time you're about to gossip or badmouth someone, next time you're about to jump into bed with your boyfriend or your girlfriend, next time you're about to have another drink, next time you're about to steal, just remember, God sees. He's there with you. I'll read you a couple more of these. Isaiah 47 verse 9. Both of these will overtake you in a moment, on a single day. Loss of children and widowhood. They will come upon you in full measure in spite of your many sorceries and all your potent spells. Now just to explain, there were some people in Israel who were getting involved in witchcraft. And this next part really is the crux of the matter for them and for us. Verse 10, God says, you have trusted in your wickedness. It's like it doesn't bother you that you're doing the things that you're doing, even though they're blatant rebellion against God. It's as though you felt secure in your wickedness. Why? You have said, no one sees me. Your wisdom and knowledge mislead you when you say to yourself, I am and there is none besides me. That ring any bells with anyone? Isn't this what we think a lot of the time? Isn't this how we get away with sin in our lives? The lie that you buy into, the lie that if I'm being honest, I buy into, 
that leads us all into sin and rebellion against God is, he can't see me. He won't see. And really, no one matters except me. Let me read you one more from the Old Testament. Jeremiah 16, verse 17. Again, God speaking. He says, My eyes are on all their ways. They are not hidden from me, nor is their sin concealed from my eyes. Getting the message. God sees everything. But what can happen when we look at these Old Testament passages is we can just kind of fall into the trap of thinking, well, that's the Old Testament. God's different now. Back then, he, he was harsh when it came to sin, but what about Jesus? I mean, Jesus just went around loving everyone. People will always link this idea that God is love back to Jesus. And uh, again, it is true, but I'll also let Jesus speak for himself. Luke 12, verse 1. Meanwhile, when a crowd of many thousands had gathered so that they were trampling on one another, Jesus began to speak first to his disciples, saying, Be on your guard against the yeast of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. What ruins, what destroys a community of faith? When people pretend that they are more than they are and begin to speak the right language and do the right stuff when their hearts are a million miles away from there. Jesus says, beware the yeast of the Pharisees, hypocrisy. It just spreads. And then look what he says, verse 2, there is nothing concealed that will not be disclosed or hidden that will not be made known. What you have said in the dark will be heard in the daylight, and what you have whispered in the ear in the inner rooms will be proclaimed from the rooftops. Now look, as long as we're talking about external stuff, I guess we can all boast. We say stuff like, well, I'm so much more disciplined at reading the Bible than others. I haven't missed a single day of church for 30 years. I'm so much more gifted than anyone else around here. It's like all those outward things can puff us up and make us feel proud. Think about what this verse just said. Think about what Jesus just said. If what you've thought about If the motives behind your actions just over the last seven days could be shown on this screen behind me right now, would you want to stay in this room and watch it all? Wouldn't you be ashamed? Wouldn't you be embarrassed? I don't think there's anyone here who would want all of their secrets aired in public. So Jesus is saying, won't you watch your heart? Won't you watch what's on the inside? Jesus isn't impressed by the image that we present to the world. He sees beneath the surface. He he sees those motives, those desires, those thoughts. He sees all those things that we've done in secret thinking no one will ever find out. And he's warning us that there is coming a day when he will expose every unconfessed thought, motive, and deed. Paul makes a similar point in 1 Corinthians 4. He says, look, my conscience is clear, but that doesn't make me innocent. It is the Lord who judges me, Therefore, judge nothing before the appointed time. Wait till the Lord comes. He will bring to light what is hidden in darkness and will expose the motives of men's heart. At that time, each will receive his praise from God. Paul's like, I might think I'm good enough, but ultimately it's not my own personal assessment that counts. It is the Lord's judgment that matters and absolutely nothing is hidden from him. So God sees everything. 
But as bad as that is, I suggest that's not actually our biggest problem. Because secondly, he not only sees, but we will have to give an account for it all. Hebrews 4 verse 12, the Word of God is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of Him to whom we must give account. So now you've got two ideas colliding here. You've got the fact that God sees everything, all of our thoughts, all of our attitudes, all of our actions. And you've also got this idea that we're going to have to stand before God one day and give an account for all those thoughts, all those attitudes, all those actions. And we can justify our behavior all we like, but it will be impossible to fool God. He knows he knows. It's a terrifying reality. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Now I know that a lot of us know this stuff, but the challenge is, do we live our lives in the light of this? Or do we conveniently push it out of our minds in the hope that if we don't think about it, it will never happen. A bit like the young child who, in closing their eyes, and because they can't see anyone else, imagines no one else can see them. I tell you, we do this at our peril. God sees everything. One day we're going to have to stand it in front of him and give an account for it. And thirdly, God will judge us and will see that justice is done. Revelation 20 verse 11. John, who received visions of what it'd be like at the end of time, speaking in picture language, puts it like this. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. Earth and sky fled from his presence. There was no place for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne and books were opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. The dead were judged according to what they had done as recorded in the books. The sea gave up the dead that were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them, and each person was judged according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. The lake of fire is the second death. If anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Now, pretty much all of secular culture, and even a large portion of the church today, shudders at this idea that there is actually a literal physical hell that God will justly judge and send people to. Because, let's be honest, that doesn't fit with what a lot of us think a loving God would do. And then we start getting into these kind of really silly conversations like, so you're telling me that just one white lie sends me to hell? First of all, I'd humbly suggest you are far more guilty than that. I've never met the guy who just has that one thing on his CV or resume. One time my my wife wanted some ice cream, but there was just only a little bit left and I wanted it. So when she asked me from the other room if there was anything left, I was like, no, there's not. And I quickly scoffed it myself. (laughs) Hell! First of all, you are far more guilty than that. Secondly, what really matters is who the offence is against, not necessarily what the offence is. Here's the easiest picture I can give you. If you lie to me, 
who cares? I mean, I'll care. I'll perhaps conclude that you're a liar, but there's no great consequence for you with that. Now, I won't speak ill of you outside of, well, maybe I, I wouldn't trust them with that. But if you lie to a high court judge, that's called perjury. You go to prison for normally up to two years, in some cases up to seven years. So if you follow that right up the chain of command, even in our culture, even in our society, you can get yourself put away for quite a long time. You see, it's who the offence is against that makes the rebellion so serious. Not necessarily what the offence is. Even in our own culture, a lie can put you away for a long time. What then a lie against the sovereign, governing creator of everything? I remember singing a song as a child about how God hates liars. It was a particularly pleasant song. And even when I was little, as I was singing it, I remember thinking to myself, I'm in a lot of trouble here. I'm singing a song about God hating me. And even earlier, we sang songs about God being just and God being a judge. And everyone had their hands raised and were looking happy. So I was growing up. And I wanted to know what God was like and who he was. The thing really I had to get to the bottom of is why Christians liked this God. How they could speak about loving this God. How they could worship him. Because to me it seemed like here are the rules, obey the rules, or there's damnation. And I knew that I wasn't any good at keeping all the rules. And here's what I also knew. Neither was anyone else that I knew who said they loved this God. Now, if that's where you're at right now, I want to take you to one more passage. I hope it will help you understand why it is that we would love why it is we would worship? Why it is we would gladly follow this God who will judge us? So 1 Peter 1, verse 13. Peter writes this, Therefore, prepare your minds for action. Be self-controlled. Set your hope fully on the grace to be given you when Jesus Christ is revealed. As obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. But just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. For it is written, be holy because I am holy. Now that's impossible, isn't it? I mean, does anyone want to come up to the front here and say that they are holy, as God is holy? Does anyone want to stand up and say, yeah, yeah, that's me, I'm perfect, If we're honest, I think we'd all have to say, look, I've been trying for that for years and just constantly falling short. Which explains why you need to set your hope fully on grace. You need to put your hope and your confidence in getting what you don't deserve. Because if we all got what we deserve, then it would be judgment from God. We need to put our hope in something different, God's grace, getting from him what we do not deserve. Let's keep reading, verse 17. Peter says, since you call on a father who judges each man's work impartially, live your lives as strangers here in reverent fear. For you know that it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your forefathers. But no, it was with the precious blood of Christ. He was like a lamb without blemish or defect. And to get this, you need to understand one of the words that was used in this passage. The word, the term, redeemed. It speaks of being bought out of slavery. It's like we're all held captive. We're unable to get free from slavery to sin, unable to live these holy lives that God calls us to live. We cannot rescue ourselves. We desperately, desperately need to be rescued. 
And we're not Jack Bauer. We don't untie ourselves, kick the guy, snatch his gun, kill 30 people. That's not us. We are doomed unless we are redeemed. We are doomed unless someone else rescues us. And we're not redeemed, we're not rescued with gold and silver that can be spent, that can run out, and then more is required. No, we are redeemed, we are rescued, we are set free by blood. And this links us right back into the whole Old Testament sacrificial system that says that the way to remove sin is through the shedding of blood. And so Jesus comes and he lives a truly perfect life with no sin and he gives his innocent life so that we might be spotless and blameless in his sight on the day of judgment. Am I guilty? Absolutely. Am I confident I'll be saved? Absolutely. Why? Because I've got a great personality? No. Because I did good, laugh too much there, because I did good things for God while I was here on earth? No. Jesus saved me before any of that. He saved me while I was at my very worst. He paid the price. He took the penalty. He carried the judgment that I deserved so that I could go free. And that's why we celebrate. That's why we sing. That's why there is this joy in us about God. This is why when we stumble and fall, we get back up and keep walking. It's not the pressure of having to be good enough and trying to earn our salvation or even having to pay Jesus back somehow. We never could. It's pointless trying. It's more a sense of how could I not live for him and seek to become more like him and try to live as he wants in light of what he's done for me? We're not motivated by guilt and condemnation. We're motivated by love and by grace. So I'll end with two things. If you're here today and you would classify yourself as an unbeliever or not being a Christian. Here, just kind of looking in, what's it all about? I want to appeal to you. Please don't mistake the patience of God with God's acceptance of your rebellion against Him. We live in a politically correct world. So there are those who would rather you weren't told the truth. And I care for you too much for that. I've got to say, because I take the Bible seriously, you are storing up for yourself wrath and judgment from God that will be revealed at the end of time. And what ends up happening to us all when we begin to just play in sinful areas is because there are often no immediate repercussions, we feel like we're getting away with it. Isn't that what Isaiah told the sorcerers, the witches, in that passage we looked at earlier? He says, you think that no one sees you. You think you're getting away with it. You think that God's ignorant, he doesn't notice. Now he does see, and you are storing up for yourselves wrath. Please, don't mistake the mercy and patience of God with you as God signing off on your rebellion. It is coming. And the Bible uses one word repeatedly for what happens when God shows up. It's the word terror. The Bible says there'll be men who plead with God to throw mountains on top of them to hide them. But there'll be no mountains. Why? Because the earth and the sky flee from his presence. You see, Jesus, for 
all his fairiness and all of his sprinkling of pixie dust comes back in Revelation with a tattoo on his thigh and a sword that he uses to make the streets run with blood. Why? Because he's just. Are you thinking, are you trying to frighten me here? Absolutely I am. You really should be frightened. And would that that fear created in you an urgency to run towards Jesus, the only one who has the power to redeem you and rescue you and give you hope for the future. And then, if you're a believer in here, if you know Jesus, have relationship with him, my hope is that as a result of all of this, you would dial back into this reality that God sees you and that maybe you'd be appalled by how often you with your life effectively say, God, you're not enough for me. Because every little dalliance with pornography, every bit of drunkenness, every one-night stand, every bit of laziness, that stuff is pretty much you saying to God, God, you aren't satisfying enough to me, so I'm going to help you out. I'm going to put my trust in other things. Every time you know the truth of God's Word, and you willingly choose to rebel against it, you're saying, God, I know better than you. And yet, even in the midst of God knowing that about you, He still loves. He still sends mercy. He still freely gives grace. And it's my hope today that that kindness leads you to repentance. Now I know the danger in all of this is that it might scare some of you off. You might be thinking right now, never going back to that church again. (laughs) But whether you ever come back here or not, this is what is absolutely true. You're an hour and 45 minutes closer to being face to face with Jesus than we were when we walked into this room. And on that day, every single one of us will be judged through our faith in the blood of Jesus or through our rebellion against him. And there will either be, well done, good and faithful servant, come in, share your master's happiness, or they'll be, depart from me into everlasting torment. And so I want to give you an opportunity to respond. I we could stand.